podcast brought to you by Liquid IV, and that is not a joke. I know I've joked before, but I'm being dead serious now. I can start sounding like a legitimate podcast here. And if you're not familiar with Liquid IV, think of it as like a Pedialyte, but even better. And like I said in the previous episodes, I think two episodes ago, never going to promote anything that I don't personally use and love. And I love Liquid IV. If you're a big guy like me, and I'm sure you are if you're listening to this episode, then we all know we sweat like crazy, whether it's you know during camp or even after the damn shower. This is what helps recharge myself, and I've been using them for a while now. And I just want to say, they didn't even give me a script and say you have to say this or say that. They gave me full creative control and said, say what you want. So this is right off the cuff of just how I feel about Liquid IV. And what I think is really cool that they do is every purchase and outside of just my code, like any 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 purchase with anything on their website, they automatically match it and give it back. So to date, they've donated over 9 million of these sticks, what they're called, to everywhere in the world. And it, they've gone to LA, they've gone to Nepal, they've gone to Haiti. So it's pretty amazing. And plus, some of their packaging is completely sustainable, like their packaging that comes in these little packets. 100% compostable, the boxes, everything. I think they're working to make their whole lineup to get to that point, but like they're taking the right steps and initiatives to get there, which I really think is pretty cool, aside from this products itself. And when it comes to the products themselves, they're super clean, which I really appreciate. Non-GMO, gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and they're made in the USA, which is pretty awesome. In terms of the product lines, they have a hydration one, which is the classic Pedialyte version, which one of these sticks equals three bottles of water, which is crazy to me. They have an energy version, which is a clean version of pre-workout. And then they have the immune support version, which is like the emergency. And then they also have a sleep version. So if you want to support me and a great company and you get an awesome product, use the discount code WEARBIGGUYS at checkout and you'll get 25% off your entire order and free shipping. And I just want to say, I will be putting this on my Instagram probably around the time this podcast comes out. I'm going to have the link in there. So it's a lot easier just to swipe up and the link will automatically apply everything for you. And before I go, I want to say this because they said I can say whatever I want. And given that my audience, listeners, you guys are majority like 98% is 21 plus. I'm going to say it. These things are the best hangover cure that you ever have in your life. And when I say that, I'm saying, say you have a nice night out. You take one of these before you go to bed. And I, I can attest to this many times. You take one of these before you go to bed, you will wake up with little to no hangover, if, if any at all. And if you don't believe me, you can go on TikTok right now, type in hashtag liquid IV, and the number one video went viral of this girl telling people what I just told you. So I, if the proof is in the pudding. I'm not the only one to just make this up. I promise you, it's the best. Th- it's one of the best things ever invented. So again, if you want to check it out, use promo code WEARBIGGUYS at the checkout, and you will receive 25% off your entire order and free shipping. Now let's finally get into... Arguably, not even arguably, get into the best interview that I've had yet. So we have a very special guest joining us on the podcast this episode. He was one of the best players during the Lou Holtz era at Notre Dame. Two-time college All-American, first-round draft pick, top 20 pick, a Super Bowl champion, 2021 College Football Hall of Fame inductee, and helped found the Joe Moore Award, which, as we all know, is awarded to the top offensive line unit in college football, making it the only major college football award to honor a group or unit, which is amazing. It's my favorite award ever. Um, so without further ado, please welcome to the show, Aaron Taylor. 
<laughs> I, didn't, I need to edit some clapping in there like that. <laughs> exactly. Oh, dude, I love it, man. Well, thanks for having me on, Patrick. This is, uh, it's been a crazy year, man. Like we were, we were, I don't know how you're going to edit this thing, but we were having yeah. a conversation, just two dudes talking about this last year and COVID and how crazy things have been. And, and ironically, when I got inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame, I had COVID and that was early January <laughs> when that happened. So I was kind of isolated from my family mm -hmm. and my wife texted me and she's like, hey, did you make it in the Hall of Fame? I'm like, I don't think so. I think the announcement's coming up, but I haven't heard anything. Nobody's called me. Nobody left me an email or whatever. She's like, I just went to the box and, and opened it up and there was a football in it. I was like, FaceTime me. <laughs> so she FaceTimes <laughs> me and shows me the ball. And I'm like, oh my gosh, look at that. And that's literally how I found out. Your FaceTime. You, FaceTime from that's my the, wife. That's the most, my mail. That's the most COVID thing ever. It's the most COVID thing ever, but there was nobody that showed up and knocked on my door like we saw with the NFL Hall of Famers. And yeah, yeah, the big, the huge guy. No, it was my wife on FaceTime. <laughs> so it, it was incredible, man. Like, I kind of had a feeling that it was coming at some point. And I know that you could be nominated five times and, and humbly, like my, my resume stood on its own. And it's kind of a weird de uh, deal, dude. I'll be honest to like get acknowledged for something you did 35 years ago. It's like mm. that hay's been in the barn a long time. So <laughs> it just, it was one of those things where it gave me an opportunity to reflect. And I, I think the best part about it, Patrick was the several hundred text mail, uh, text messages, emails, phone calls. I got like former high school teammates, parents were calling me <laughs> that I hadn't talked to in 20 years. Ron Wolf, the general manager at Green Bay that drafted me out of Notre wow. Dame sent me a text like, and I hadn't talked to him since I left Green Bay. So <laughs> it was incredible. And I woke up that next morning and because I was isolated, I had the time on my hand. I went down and I, care, I keep a gratitude journal. And we talked about mental health or will here in a, in a bit, but that's mm -hmm. a, a key thing for me is to focus on the good shit so that my mind doesn't go crazy. And, you have to chase ghosts and start picking up blitzes that aren't coming if you know what i'm talking about <laughs> so i wrote down every name of every person place or thing that helps me be recognized and what i quickly realized is that although it was an individual recognition it was really a group of accomplishment and mm -hmm. and that was what was most profoundly impactful for me was just how much love and support and adoration I had from people around me. And, I, and honestly, man, that's the thing that I think has meant the most to me is that network and being a part of this game in such a unique way with great people. Yeah. And that's why people always say, and I always say too, football is just the ultimate team game. And it's not even, it's not even just your players or your teammates it goes like it says the coaches and like trainers and everybody involved in the entire program means so much just to you know make Saturdays or Sundays happen um, so that's pretty awesome congratulations on the honor now knowing you I feel like you might know this but if you don't you're the 48th Notre Dame football player to be inducted into the Hall of Fame which is the most ever like any other school nobody has more than Notre Dame and when I think of Notre Dame I think of like cream of the crop like best arguably the top football program ever in college football history. I mean, you've traditions like to play like a champion sign, which is synonymous with Notre Dame football, the pep rallies, the touchdown, Jesus, the golden dome, the Rockney gravesite. Like there's just so much tradition history there. So I, I want to kick this off with just asking you straight up, what makes Notre Dame football so special? Ooh, man. Uh, I, the, the, 
the quick and easy answer is the people, right? It's a special place to begin with. It's uh, when you go on campus, for those of the listeners that have had the opportunity to go there, it's like Catholic Disneyland, man. You just walk on there <laughs> and like everything's manicured. There's these big ass friendly squirrels that come up and eat, you know, nuts and stuff out of your hands or whatever. But it's, it's a, a beautiful <laughs> setting. But I think more than that, because of maybe the Catholic thread that runs through it, it was a type of place that like, it, it, if you weren't a Notre Dame dude, you didn't want anything to do with it. And I came out in 90 from De La Salle High School out on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And that was two years removed from the national championship. That was year one of the NBC contract. So Notre Dame football was it. Lou Holtz was, I think, year three and things were rolling. So it was easy for me, but I think what kind of sold me on it was my athletic director, this dude, Tom Bowen, who would later go on to be the AD at uh, San Jose State and then at Memphis and have some great years there. Tom went to Notre Dame and he was in the seminary, but it only lasted like a year or two because he met some chick at St. Mary's, the all girls <laughs> school across the street. He's like, eh, I don't think the seminary's for me. <laughs> oh, that, that ended it quick. <laughs> So maybe his parents weren't too happy, but he certainly oh was. God. But dude, he started brainwashing my ass right after <clears> me, <throat> putting keychains in my locker with the fight song. And as it turned out, it was my first trip that that my first official visit after my or my senior year. I guess the season had just just ended, and they used to bring in all the dudes that they wanted. Like their their guys that they were targeting always came in for that uh banquet weekend and it was december 2nd that year why i remember Mm. that i don't know but it was me it was brian young it was jerome bettis it was like there were 26 guys there and i think 20 of us that went on that trip ended up signing and i think one of the only dudes that didn't was like andre hastings he ended up going to tennessee but like we clicked right out of the gate man and Mm. I I was a California kid. I had this big ass Russian hat and this Patagonia jacket that I had to buy specifically for that trip because I didn't have any (laughs) warm winter clothes. And I rode in the car with this dude, Dean Lytle. And Dean was from North Carolina, would end up playing D-line and kind of fullback. And I'd never met somebody from the South or that had an accent. And it was just like, we clicked right out of the gate. And there was a humility that ran through I think the the cats that came in that class and Jeff Burris, who I'd later be a captain with, and Tim Ruddy, who's from Pennsylvania, that was the center for Dan Marino for 10 years. Like, oh, okay. we had some dudes on that team, man. But I think looking back, it felt familiar when I was on campus and looking at the dome and Aaron Taylor, your ass has a chance to be one of the finest offensive <laughs> linemen <laughs> ever came out of California, Notre Dame. And I was hook, line, and sinker, man. But He wasn't like, lying. Like, <laughs> yeah the the people make make the place well it's just it seems like such a special place i've yet to get there but i know i'm going to get there sooner than later my my oldest brother one of his very good friends was a four-year starter at notre dame um on the national championship team that played alabama actually unfortunately yeah I that didn't say. Go so well. um but just getting to talk with him and then and just experience like there's just something about how notre dame alum whether it's a student or an athlete like you guys like there's just a different like excitement and joy and just passion for Notre Dame and the branding. I always talk to my friends about this. There's people that wear Notre Dame stuff that have no affiliation with Notre Dame other than maybe, maybe they're Catholic. Like you said, maybe they like the football team, but it's just, it's amazing. Just the brand that Notre Dame has across, you know, the spectrum from sports and just the world in general. No doubt, man. And, and, 
like when you think college football, it's passion, it's rivalry, it's tradition, but it's also regionality, right? It's a very regionalized sport. Hundred percent. or the Midwest and the Big Ten, the ACC. It's like you 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 land in the state of Alabama where I just was to present them with the Joe Moore Award uh, this spring, and Cole Kublick came up and. It was really good. Brad Fichtel, who was a guy that was there with us in year one. And, and just so the listeners are clear, I'm going to be recruiting Patrick to be a part of the Joe Moore Award for this 2021 season. I'd Stay just say tuned that right for now. more there. Um, but the, the, the thing that was unique about Notre Dame is during World War II, it, they would have these newsreels. And for whatever reason, Notre Dame was the only sport that was covered on the back end of those newsreels that went – national so they created what was called subway alumni people that were affiliated and passionate about notre dame but to your point never went there had never been on campus but they kind of became america's team starting back in the 1940s so it's a really unique uh institution in collegiate football because of the national following and you go you know all the shamrock series games wherever you go the stadiums are packed Mm -hmm. Part of the reason I chose to go there was every year we alternated between Stanford and USC playing in California. So I'd always get to go home and invariably we'd walk into the stadium and it felt like a home game. It was crazy. Yeah. And one of the best quotes I have to read and I'm not even saying just on the podcast history, just in football, in my opinion, this quote just got me fired. I I wanted to run through a wall (laughs) for Notre Dame and I have no affiliation with Notre Dame, but I'm going to read this quote from you. It says, Aaron Taylor said it best. I was fortunate enough to have a career in professional football, and I played in two Super Bowls, and we won one of them. But it still doesn't compare to the thrill of running out of the tunnel in Notre Dame Stadium. So can you just explain to me that quote and how much Notre Dame means to you? And I want to talk about Notre Dame Stadium. Is that the best college football stadium in the country, in your opinion? I'm biased. There's some great venues. Um, so I put my analyst hat on and, and, you know, there's some, some nice football tracks around the country. Um, for, for me, I, I think what's unique about it was its simplicity and touchdown Jesus and the diagonal lines in the end zone, no names on the back of our jerseys. Like it, it was an intimate homey feel, right? There's 64,000 people back then. There's 84 and almost 90,000 now and field turf and jumbotrons and shit. It's a mess. Uh, but I digress. I'm, I'm, I'm the old guy that's telling <laughs> the young cats to get off my lawn. Um, but there was something special, man, coming down the stairs and hitting the sign. Um, touchdown Jesus, like walking out on that field. It meant something. And we all carried an obligation and, and a responsibility that we felt to uphold the standard of the guys that came before us, the guys we didn't know that would come after us. And I think <clears throat> it was like, that was when we all grew up and became men. Like I walked on the campus as a 17 year old and, and walked out three and a half years later with a degree and, and getting drafted to green Bay and, and was a man. And mm-hmm. so I think from that perspective, And I'll never forget like the last college game senior day for me as a four year, three year starter, you know, two time unanimous all American Lombardi award winner. Mm -hmm. The the greatest honor I received there was being elected a captain by my peers, Mm -hmm. but walking out for senior day for that last time. And it was the Boston college home game. And it's the one that we lost after beating Florida state, who was number one with Charlie Ward and work done Derek Alexander and Derek Brooks and, this all-star roster we just shot our wad and and couldn't get it back but 
like crying. I've never cried so hard in my life in a football environment. Maybe <laughs> after a loss, Super Bowl 32, we lost. I cried pretty hard. Mm -hmm. But it was like, this is it. It's over. Like, I'll never, ever, ever get to do this again. And there's something about that finality where you know that some places meant so much to you that, that you'd never get to experience again that I just it was one of the rare times in football where I was completely present and just like was smelling grass and looking at the sights and <clears throat> listening to sounds just trying to soak it all in but I, I'm struggling to even put it into words like that was home man and that was our home and we defended it and mm -hmm. I never walked out on that field and ever thought we were going to lose a game to anybody and, and that started my very first was we, we played Michigan in a night game, my true freshman year. And Rick Meyer ended up on the, the cover of Sports Illustrated as the golden boy. And we scored a late touchdown to go ahead on Michigan. But we come into the locker room after and Holt said, see, man, if you follow the plan and you do what I say, you'll never lose a game in this stadium ever. And from that moment on, I'm like, all right. I'm bought in. <laughs> yeah. Follow the plan. How we win. We're going to whip people's asses. And man, <laughs> did we? So a lot of good memories there. Um, but it's an iconic venue. And to be a small piece of something that significant, man, is, is something I always cherish. Just myself. I'm not biased in any regard. When I think of college football, the first three stadiums that come to my mind immediately are Notre Dame Stadium, the Rose Bowl, and the Big House. And yeah. I, like you're saying, I'm a sucker for just the bowl. Like I love yep. the simplicity of the bowls yep. and everyone's has an amazing view. And it's just so much better than all this. Like, and I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't even, I wasn't even going to bring it up. But now that you did, I, I'm going to ask you about it. I, I remember myself, my dad, like my family, we're not even Notre Dame fans really, but we were pissed when the, they put turf in and they took yeah. the grass out. Like the little things like that drive me nuts. So I'd love to hear your opinion on, on the little changes that they've been making over the years to stadiums like Notre Dame stadium and, and to other famous venues around the world too. Like just something like putting in turf drives me nuts. Yeah. And man, we could still use eight tracks to listen to music, but there's, you know, better ways to enjoy. Uh, Not, enjoy our there's no band. way, there's no better way to play football than on a perfectly manicured grass field. I'll, I'll die. You, I'll die on that hill. There, there, and I'll die on that hill with you. And it, economically it, it makes more sense to have field turf particularly in the midwest where yeah, no, that weather involved and it's like it's all economic driven but like from a certain respect like notre dame was forced to make those changes reluctantly and keeping up with the joneses and is i'm a guy that grew up in the 90s and was a much simpler kid like you can't have an old ass archaic stadium that looks like it did back in 1940 <laughs> with kids that are coming up today because they got too many uh, other options to go play that and, and they were doing that and there was you know a, a dark period for Notre Dame for 10 plus years <laughs> that you know they weren't getting the recruits because they couldn't keep up with the Joneses they were still practicing at Loftus in the indoor practice field where I practiced and they just built that beautiful new complex and the new goo building that you know started I think five or six years ago they had to modernize and mm -hmm. it the the tail has always wagged the dog and that's been economics and Notre Dame held out I think as long as they could but I was like wait, you're putting a row on top and you can't see touchdown Jesus. Like what? Right. So it, it, those are the things where I think it hurt me and a lot of the traditionalists. It sounds like your family, but 
at being fair, I get it. They had to do it to be able to keep up with the Joneses because the Joneses have been getting their shit together for these last 20 years. And mm-hmm. kids that are coming out and getting recruited now have a lot of options other than Notre Dame to go play football. Yeah, that's a great point. It's The recruiting aspect has just gone so out of control, in my opinion. And, and I don't know if it's for good or for worse, but it's just crazy what you see nowadays with the facilities and, and everything that other schools are offering now. So I, I, I completely understand, see – that side of the argument for Notre Dame to be able to get these kids. You can't be, you got to have a nice locker room and beautiful turf and everything. But being a Pittsburgh native, as I've said, I got asked about Jerome Bettis, the bus. He's a legend in the Berg. I was just wondering as a lineman, I played with some great guys in high school, four guys. One went to Wisconsin, two went to Pitt, one went to Mount Union, won many championships there. And there's just something about when you have a great athlete, a great player behind you, my coach always said, like, they make you right. So if you don't get the best, most full block, that's all they need is a little crack daylight, they'll hit it. Or if you don't reach a guy enough or take him a certain way, they'll, they'll cut up and you know, go the other way. They'll make it right. So I've always loved playing for exceptional backs. And then, granted, they weren't Hall of Famers like uh, some of the guys you played with. But I have to imagine either on the field or off the field, there's got to be some at least one or two great Jerome Bettis stories. Oh my gosh, man. Like, I know this is probably a family, a family friendly show, but like another way to say what you said about, they make you right is they un-F things up. Jerome was a guy that would un-F things up. Like if there was a little bit of penetration or a dude didn't get blocked, like what made him special was that he was a 255, almost 60 pound back that ran like he was 212. Crazy feet crazy feet the agility the lateral quicks running behind his pads with power but the his contact balance through the hole like it it was amazing and he got brought to Notre Dame as a two-way player and started out uh on the scout team going against the defense in camp and we had a rash of injuries early on and Holtz was getting scared that you know, we weren't going to have any backs. So they moved Jerome to, to go service the defense. Well, he started trucking dudes like the <laughs> Michael Stonebreakers, Demetrius DeBose and, and breaking arm tackles and shaking safeties in the hole. And Holtz was like, Oh, bring them on the offensive side. And, and he was one of the, the first guys out of our class to, to end up playing. And as the season wore on, got more touches. And then by our true sophomore year, it was the Jerome Bettis show, man. But like, there was no better feeling than it being like the middle of the third quarter. And, and we start lathering up and dialing up the run and watching dudes turn him down in the hole. Like mm-hmm. at some point he didn't have to make a miss because they wanted no part of the bludgeoning that he was going to give them. man. He was a special, special player. There's no better feeling in football in my opinion, and maybe this is my lineman bias coming out, but when you're just pushing someone against their will and you can see them starting to break a little bit, like they, they're like, you know, they're going to run this certain play and they, they can't do anything about it. And they're like, son of a bitch. Like, yeah, <laughs> we, like we can't stop them. We're screwed. That's like, there's no better feeling than like, it usually happens. Like you're saying like middle to late third quarter, maybe. And all, and then you just know like this game's a wrap. We're, we're, yeah. They're mentally, they're done. They already checked out. <clears throat> And, and like Russ Grimm, famous pit football player, his coach was Joe Moore, my coach, right? So in his Hall of Fame speech, he gave the famous quote, which is, there's no greater joy in life than moving a man from point B, point A to point B <clears throat> against his will. And that, yeah, you know, by very definition, sums up not only the O-line, but football as a sport, right? Like, 
in the NFL, I was paid to move people out of the way. They were paid to get past me. Go. Like one of us had to be right and one of us had to be wrong. And they're doing everything they can to stop me from exerting my will and vice versa. <clears throat> and I think the pleasure we derive are those moments where you like, it doesn't matter what they come in. It's obvious run. Like we would come up sometimes, we'd be dicks, come up the line of scrims, be like, it's a zone, inside zone. Right? <laughs> we're running power, right? And just tell them what we were doing. They couldn't stop it. And you want to go watch some highlights, YouTube 1992 Sugar Bowl, Jerome Bettis highlights okay, and, and watch him break off two long touchdown runs at 260 pounds. And that was running 60 trap, Patrick. We ran 60 trap in, in Florida was really good. They had a couple of good dudes up front. McCoy ended up playing. I ended up playing against him in Indianapolis for the Colts, but they were spiking and stunting inside, which is a crisscross and exchange, a defensive line where they mm -hmm. exchange gaps. And it's hard because it, it creates penetration. And if your pad level isn't right for an offensive lineman, it creates havoc. Well, it did for two and a half quarters, but that was a halftime adjustment we made. And basically if the three technique that I was supposed to pull and kick out slanted inside, I would log him and basically turn it into power and mm -hmm. the back would hit off my outside edge. We did that twice for touchdowns. And mm -hmm. that was all Jerome, man. Like we would crease and gash people in, we'd get in the, the, the T formation with the three backs. And like when it was, you know, fourth and one or, or fourth and goal, these short yarded situations, those gotta have it situations we talked about and people were powerless to stop us, especially when we had six in the backfield. What's going on? I hope you're enjoying my interview with Aaron Taylor. I just wanted to pop in and say, if you haven't yet, check out our store, shopwearebigguys.com for all your big guy apparel needs and join the family. Now let's jump back in the interview with the legend himself, Aaron Taylor. But speaking of Russ Grimm, I was going to go to your Green Bay, but now that he brought it up, I went to Joe Moore line camp in Pittsburgh. Yeah. I went to the first ever one. My high school f head coach played quarterback at Pitt, like back in the day. Um, I think that was the connection to, to get myself and some of my teammates to the go to the camp. It was the first one ever. But Russ Grimm came in and held and everything. Yep. And one of like his quote was point A to point B. So that's where I got it from. So it's funny yep. that you, you brought that up. But I want to get stick to uh, your career first before we get into the Joe Moore Award stuff. First round draft picks to Green Bay. So you went from Notre Dame. This I was laughing just you know you went from Notre Dame, which is amazing, to Green Bay, Lambeau Field, the Packers. Like talk about like storied franchise, and then oh from a, from a from a college like that had to have been incredible. So, and I started out at De La Salle, which had a 13 year win streak, 151 straight games. So, so you just never lose. You're just, <laughs> you're just well, undefeated. I've been, <laughs> well, I, I'm certainly no stranger to what a championship program looks like. I'll tell you that, man. Like mm. the football gods have overly blessed me in that department. So, I go to Notre Dame and get to play there. I win the Lombardi, then get drafted to Green Bay and win the Lombardi trophy there as a Super Bowl <laughs> champion. It's just like, you can't make it up. Um, but man, it was like, I thought it was going to tamper the Rams fifth or sixth overall, fifth or sixth overall. And everybody had questions about my shoulders because it would always sublex, which is popping in and out of joint when it would get, you know, extended out. And I wore mm. a big brace and was at the combine. They're all junking on my shoulders. And day four, I blow my right knee out. Nobody, I never had missed it down, never had any injuries. And I pulled a fast one on them, I guess. Yeah. But 
it didn't start out good in Green Bay for me personally. I was on IR my, my rookie year, but I came back and played that whole next year. Unfortunately, blew out my other knee, same injury, ruptured patella tendon on my left side. And I'm like, all right. So now maybe karma's coming back for these great franchises that I <laughs> yeah. get to play for. <laughs> God's kind of evening things out. But that third year, I was able to stay healthy and, and we go to the Super Bowl. So, you know, I'll let you fill in the gaps there. But I stay healthy. We finally win it. That's all I'm saying, Patrick. Um, <laughs> But it was like LaFon, if I called the, the Packers front office right now, LaFon would answer the phone. Like, mm -hmm. it, it, like the same people that were there 30 years ago when I was there are there right now. And they never leave. And it's a town of 100,000, man. It's like a, a suburb somewhere having its own storied franchise. And there's nothing else there. So it, it I think is probably the closest thing to a, a collegiate experience in the NFL. Like you couldn't go to the store. You couldn't go anywhere without people knowing who you were wanting to take pictures. And mm. it, it was a rough patch. Like they hadn't won. Uh, yeah. They were terrible. They were terrible in the eighties, I think. Right. Eighties, nineties. Awful. Awful. And hadn't won a championship, I think since the sixties. Yeah. So it had been 30 plus years before we brought the title back to title town. But had dudes like Brett Favre in the locker room and this guy Reggie White and yeah, no big deal. Yeah, no, no big deal. Couple, couple, <laughs> couple guys. But I not, talking about stadiums, Lambeau. I mean, that's that has to be the number one football stadium ever, in my opinion. I and my Man. one of my best friends from college, their Packers, their family is just huge Packers family. And I believe the Steelers are going there this upcoming season, so I'm going to try to get out there to finally experience it because I've just a bucket list for any football fan, obviously. Um, so I, I just can't even imagine playing and, and being on a team like with Favre in that era with Favre and white and yourself, like, and you had a lot of other good players. Um, I'm trying to think of the tight end. You had a really good tight end too. Mark, Mark Chimera, Mark Chimera, Mark Chimera, Keith Jackson, awesome uh, Antonio team. Freeman. The place had uh, been rocking. Yeah. It, it was incredible. Like, Andre Risen was on that team that year that we won. Uh, mm. Desmond Howard, you know, had a couple punt returns, kick returns for for touchdowns in the Super Bowl that we won. Like, right. And that was the thing that was so crazy was Robert Brooks was on that team. Was like we had one football, but we had some dudes at the receiver position, mm -hmm. and somehow, some way, Homer and kept our container and locker room such that whoever got the ball got featured was happy we didn't have a lot of dudes well wow i want more touches i want more of this and i want more of that there was some of that obviously because egos get involved but on the whole like why we won the championship and i'll take this to my grave was because we were a good locker room we were good dudes we were a good team and if the mm -hmm. defense was struggling and we had to outscore some people there was never any finger pointing if we played uh, minnesota one monday night and and i unfortunately was part of a seven sack a loud night against John Randall and company on Monday night. And we just legend. couldn't do a snap count and they were freaking crushing us. Brett never bitched or yelled. It was, come on guys, give me a little bit of time. We're going to call this. You give me an extra second. I can step up and we can hit them for a touchdown. It was like, it was always positive and Reggie coming over and always saying something. And you know, the Reverend, when he spoke, we all listened. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was just, God told him to go to Green Bay because he was going to win a championship, man. Plan B, free agency and all that stuff. And lo and behold, <laughs> man, it, it ended up being. But it was a special time and a special place. But again, just like talking about Notre Dame, and I'll take this to my grave, we won and we were so successful. We were talented, but we were a good team.
mm-hmm. where there was no ego involved and there was tremendous trust and trust says in the inevitable times of adversity that you can count on me. I'll, I'll find a way to get it done. I'll do my job no matter what. And we had that element on both sides of the football and that's why we went 16 and three and I got a Super Bowl trophy. One of my questions for you is, is winning a Super Bowl. What, what's that like? What's it just that experience like playing in a game that, you know, had an 80 yard touchdown pass that kick the kickoff return that Howard had, it had been such a, a crazy, just a whirlwind of emotions kind of atmosphere. I'd imagine playing in Super Bowl. Um, and my follow-up question that you can get to after that is as an NFL player, do you is it do you view that as like that's why you play? That's the pinnacle of every single season, or is it kind of like you go into certain locker rooms and you think we got a shot and like this might be a Super Bowl team, you know? Because I feel like at the end of the day, I understand it's still a job, you're just trying to you know, make a living. So if you're on a team that, you know, has no shot, I, I have to imagine a Super Bowl has to be like nowhere near your mind. Well, I was a free agent after I left green Bay and came out to the chargers with, with Ryan leaf, who was a first round pick. And we, I didn't know. We I didn't know that. Clear. We were pretty clear. We weren't a Super Bowl contender. I'll tell you that. And that makes it tough, man. There was a one in 15 season in there. And thankfully my last season ever, we won on the road against Denver rushed for over 200 yards and ended up finishing that year, eight and eight respectively. But mm-hmm. The the Ron Wolf built that team to to win a Super Bowl. And Holmgren had had experience being on Bill Walsh's staff. And and we had two dudes on the team that had been in the Super Bowl, Don Beebe and and Jim McMahon. So after we win the NFC championship game, that was the first thing that happened. They stood up and be like, All right, guys, tell us what to expect. And they both were like, You have never in your life seen or experienced anything like these next two weeks are going to be. And like at that, we all just kind of stood up on the edges of our seats and we're all ears. And he's like the amount of media attention and coordination with family and ticket requests. And it's just a shit show around you. Mm -hmm. So going down there and being able to make it a business trip, which we all say, like it's never been more important than what we're going to do. And especially down in new Orleans, but the, the, they talked specifically about the game and said, you're going to be so amped up in pregame that you can't shoot your wad. Like you can't get so tired because you're so jacked up and excited. That was the mistake that we all made. And like, they would kind of go through all these things that they did for us to avoid. And man, were they right? Like I was the first thing where I knew it was different was we had a kicker. I won't say his name. It's probably past the statute of limitations, but he had a Brown paper sack with $700,000 in it that a major soft drink company had given him to go into the locker room the day we got tickets to buy corporate tickets for their partners and clients. Mm -hmm. And because Green Bay doesn't have an owner, we each got 30 tickets. We got like two premium 50 yard line tickets and then like a chunk that were kind of good. And then like some nosebleed seats. Mm -hmm. Like I walked out of that locker room with like $50,000 in cash from selling my tickets. Like that was indicator one, that it was going to be different. Indicator (laughs) two was during uh, media day. I did uh, an interview in Japanese to some radio or TV station from Japan with an interpreter. That that was two. Number three was in pregame being so jacked up, like, being as tired as I've ever been in my life prior to kickoff because your Mm -hmm. adrenaline's running and like you're covering the ball down instead of just running five or six yards, like 50 yards down. 
and coming back in. And then we had the pregame show ZZ Top played at halftime. You come back out and there's all this smoke from the pyrotechnics. Uh, after you get off the field from warming up before the game started was like 37 minutes. Like you had to stretch all over oh. again. Like it was nothing about it was familiar or the cadence of a normal game. And that's why the team that manages all that and makes the fewest mistakes ends up winning because mm -hmm. it's exponentially different and challenging because of the nature of what it is. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that always blew my mind, just a thing of different, strictly a player perspective are the, like you said, the monster breaks, whether it's the halftime show or the pregame show, I feel like that the way you have to manage that as a player in terms of stretching and like during halftime, when you went in there, like how, what did you, what did you guys do during the halftime? I know it's like a half hour long. Yeah. And usually you have like four minutes, right? Like you come in, you go to the bathroom, you get water, you go get a shot or whatever it is you need. You come back, the coaches all leave and, and are talking as an offense, as a defense, as a team. And then they come back out and kind of the information runs down from the staff to us. And here's the adjustments we're going to make. We run two jet protection instead of sliding to the wheel. We're going to do it to the mic and blah, blah, whatever. So it was like 17 minutes. So like we're ready to go back out and made the adjustments, yeah. but it's like, yeah, so you know, it's, 10 minutes at least more. Yeah. So it's like, what do you do with that 10 minutes? We had never had 10 minutes and it's, it's very similar to when there's rain delays and like teams come out, they're hot, they're winning, boom, then lightning strikes and you go sit down. Like the team that manages that the best usually wins. And, and I was part of a game at air force where the game 100% flip flopped uh, between the two teams because of weather related, because you just don't know how to, to, to handle that. So it was awkward. And what they talked about was, you know, just stay focused, you know, stay amongst yourselves. I tried to calm down and relax and close my eyes. Cause I tended to be a player that was too amped and the more relaxed I was, the better I played. So it allowed for that, but it was like the speed of that game, Patrick, it's the fastest I've ever played football in my life. I had no idea that the game of football, the thing that I'd done my entire life could be played that fast. Cause everyone's adrenaline is just pumping. Oh dude, the opening play, uh, the series of the game for us offensively, there was a TV timeout halfway through and like, we'd run six plays or seven plays and they call a TV timeout. And I look over at Frank Winters or center. I'm like, Oh my, Oh my God. Like, yeah. are you tired? Like, I can't breathe. Oh my God. What's up? He's like, dude, dude, we got to settle down, dude. We got to settle down. And we just like, we were so amped and it took a series or two to kind of settle yeah, yeah. down. And they had this dude, Ted Johnson, number 52, a linebacker. I swear to God, his freaking head was made out of cement. And like, <laughs> he, he came downhill on his uh. own play and like met me like a yard, you know, off the ball. and was like hitting a freaking brick wall. And we got two or three or four yards or whatever it was. I come back to the huddle. I'm like, yo, buckle your junk for 52. He is bringing it. And it's just. That's After unbelievable. That, it was a blur and just became football, but it was. That was one of my least favorite. I played I played tackle in, in high school, so I didn't experience a lot. But I played guard in college, and one of the worst, my least favorite thing was when the linebackers would just come downhill and just meet you in the hole. They're, so I can't even imagine like specimens doing that. Like that, that'd oh be God. that's like it's like it's like you said. It's like you literally just ran into a brick wall at full speed. I just ran into a brick wall. Like that's that's. See so this play call. You're telling me I'm just gonna run into a brick wall. All right, got that's it. it. Just, break. Just <laughs> um, oh man. So if I got CTE, it's probably Ted's fault. 
Welcome to the second intermission of the interview. I'm here to tell you about Liquid IV. Amazing for hydration, amazing for recovery, amazing for hangovers. So if you're interested in trying it out, use promo code WEARBIGGUYS and you will receive 25% off your entire order and free shipping. Now let's get back to the interview with former Notre Dame star and Super Bowl champion for the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Taylor. Before we move on for the Packers, quickly, Brett Favre, Reggie White, two of the greatest players ever in the history of the game. What was it like being on a team in the huddle with a guy like Brett I've heard awesome stories about him as a leader, so maybe you can verify him or maybe you can say that they're wrong. Um, and then Reggie, obviously just a special guy, not even aside from football, just a human being. Uh, yeah. What was it like? What was it like being able to, you know, be on the same team as him and go up against him in practice? Uh, Brett was special. I'll start with him. Uh, toughest guy I've played with on any level in any position His his pain tolerance and, uh, ability to endure. And, and a lot of times we talk about toughness in the sport of football in terms of like the punishment we can deliver and give out. But there's another piece of toughness, which can be used synonymously with resilience. It's about how much pain you can endure and tolerate yourself. And Brett was phenomenal at that. Like as a football player, he was a winner. He wanted the ball in his hands. He was a gunslinger. He would take chances. But as he got more mature in his career, those chances tended to, to play out. But he was a dude that was the the team practical joker, like letting off stink bombs and team meetings and, you know, doing all sort of stuff to get underneath Holmgren's skin. Um, but he was a fun dude. He was cheap as shit. Like we weren't getting no isotoners. Um, <laughs> He took us all down to Cancun one year, I think, after the year we won the Super Bowl on like a free tr- thank you trip. And, and he had to sign autographs. And as part of that, he said, hey, I negotiated you guys get free airfare and rooms. Like, sweet, man. Like, finally, Favre comes through. Mm-hmm. And then on day, like, three of the trip, he's like, oh, by the way, you guys have to come with me tomorrow. And you're going to be signing autographs for two hours. We're like, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> he, sold um, your, he sold his soul for the trip. Oh, my God. It was probably the plan all along with yeah. him. But, like, that's what you loved about him, man. He was just a, a simple country dude from Mississippi that loved ball and was extremely talented. He was a winner. And I remember there was a, I think it was my third year there, maybe my second, that he got hurt the week before, didn't take a snap in practice, literally crutched in from the player's lot into the stadium on Sunday, gets shot up throws three touchdowns against Cincinnati and crutches out of the stadium after the game. And there was a play we were heading on the TV as you're watching it left to right. So I don't know what quarter it was, but Frank got beat right off the snap. And we were at like the, the plus 25 or so. And, and Brett hit Robert Brooks on a, on a quick slant, I think. And there were two defenders, like Robert caught the ball on the goal line. There were two defenders, maybe three yards to either side of Robert, right? So six mm-hmm. yards apart were Robert in the middle. I think it was RB. Favre throws a dime from like the 25-yard line with, with basically bracket coverage on our best receiver and somehow threaded that ball with his arm strength there. And both hands went – they tried to, to slap it down and couldn't. Mm-hmm. And like all of us looked at each other and were like – holy smokes like you watched it on film you're like no 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 oh my god yeah and he would do those oh my god plays <clears throat> in practice during games and it just you you he was special and he was different well one of the games that gave me so much respect for Favre 
in terms of toughness was the uh, the bounty gate game. Yeah. I mean, when he was just getting pounded, he like he didn't stop once. He didn't complain to the refs. He he just he went on. And even after the game, I don't think he ever really said much about it. He was just like whatever. Like he, he just. I couldn't believe the amount of toughness he took in that game and the way he handled it after I was just kind of, I was so impressed with it. Um, but it's funny. You like, I feel like everyone, all the great ones or special ones. There's those stories where they do stuff like you're saying, either practice or games. And it's just like, everyone's like, just for a second, you're like, like, do you see that? Like, that's, that's not, yeah. that's different. That's not normal. Yeah. It's, it's called peer envy is, is what I call it. And like, I would get up off the bench after, you know, running, we, the, the offense came off the sideline, we make our adjustments, and we played Detroit twice a year. And I'd get up off the bench and go watch Barry Sanders destroy our defense. Like, mm. our best tacklers, Leroy Butler, like, just shaking dudes in their boots and, and breaking ankles. And, like, we look at each other like, like, we all earn the right to be on the same field that that dude's on, but that dude's got something that none of us yeah. have. Like, and, and you saw that, and Reggie was that way. And like a couple quick stories about him. Now, what I loved about him was he, his faith was one of uh, of attraction, not promotion. So he wasn't going to come in and preach, but he would like a tall man doesn't have to tell you he's tall. And when Reggie walked in the room, you knew where he was, you knew who he was, and it just oozed out of him that leadership that we mm -hmm. knew came from a faith standpoint. So a couple quick stories, one of which was he always battled his weight. So we would come to work, we'd have meetings, we'd go out, have walkthrough, we'd come back, we'd eat lunch and lift and then go out and practice, watch, you know, film after practice and go home. That's a very basic, you know, Wednesday practice, we'll say. So Reggie wasn't a big lifter. So Kent Johnson, this dude from Texas, was our strength and conditioning coach. He's like, hey, buddy, he called everybody buddies. Like, buddy, Reggie, buddy, we... We, it's November and, and we got to kind of get you in there to, to lift weights and, and get you strong just so your body stands up. I know you've been doing good on the Stairmaster, but we want to lift. And Reggie's like, okay. So we said, well, what we're doing today is we're doing the incline and, and that's to work the upper part of the chest muscles. Uh -huh. <laughs> so he's like breaking it down and Reggie's like, okay. So he puts on three plates on the left side, three plates on the right side. It's 315, right? And lifts it off and goes, wiki, 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 one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, wiki, 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 and repped out like 20 reps, racks it, and Kent looks at him and goes, okay, buddy, that's good. Go ride the Stairmaster again. <laughs> like, the, the country strength that Reggie had, and you saw it in his patented hump move that Howie Long taught him, like, you knew it was coming and couldn't stop it. And thank right. God he played over our right tackle, Earl Dotson, in practice. And I never had to <laughs> block him in those four years, except for once. We were playing Tampa. We're running a double eagle where both guards in the center are covered. And they were going to reduce Reggie down over the guard instead of a tackle because they felt like they had a mismatch in, in a nickel situation. So the defensive line coach, Larry, comes over and, and, and Brett comes over. My O-line coach is like, hey, we're going to have Reggie take a couple rushes over you to kind of get him some live reps to get ready for this game on Sunday against Tampa. I'm like, yeah, no problem. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I buckle my junk up a little bit tighter. 
And on the first rep, for whatever reason, I felt like he was going to swim me, right? Like I was reading his body and he would always get in a stance and kick that leg. Whenever you saw that leg kick, you knew you were in trouble and I didn't see it. I was like, oh, sweet, right? So he comes up and he goes to swim me inside and I stabbed the crap out of him, Patrick. Like mm. I punched perfectly, timed it perfect and like knocked him back and he trips over Gilbert Brown, the nose tackle, who's going to go and do the next rep. So all the D linemen were like, <clears throat> oh, Reg, how are you going <laughs> to let him do you like that, Reg? And like he got up and looked at me and buckled his chin strap. He took that <laughs> live, quote unquote, without his helmet buckled. And that's when I knew mistakes had been made. <laughs> right. That's like the worst thing that could happen, honestly. Oh, dude. So he gets in his stance in a wide three and I'm like, oh shit, I'm about to get humped. And he kicks the leg and I'm like, oh Lord, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. And I pass set and I went to punch and I don't know what part of my neck hit the ground first, the left side or the right side, but he jacked me. Like it was, we talk about Ted Johnson coming downhill. Like it was dense, like wet sand. Like it was a strength and power that you rarely saw. And I just got a glimpse of it. And like, he blew me back into the bag and we run back to the line of scrimmage. Like, how was that AT? I was like, I, I think that was pretty good. Reg, do that on Sunday. You're going to be just fine. And he was. <laughs> I don't even, I like, I don't even know if I need to say anything other than just let that story play out. Cause that's just, cool. so that's amazing moment though. Like to, to experience that hump move at least once. Like I, it's like something that's like an honor. I'm, I'm honored that you just threw me on my ass. <laughs> Yeah, that, that will not be on my highlight tape. I'll show you that. Yeah. Like, it, it was unstoppable, man. Like, and dudes would knew it was coming. And, like, the Super Bowl we won, like, I would watch Max Lane, uh, the the right tackle for New England play on the crossover games, right? You're always watching other O-lines that are playing the team that you're about to play. And, like, Max was a good player. Well, Reggie humped him like he was freaking tissue paper twice to stop key critical drives and key critical moments. And I think, like, that's what people – at home don't understand when you pay the money you pay for a Reggie white or for a pass rusher, one of those creatures off the outside edge, mm. like all that stuff in the first and second quarter, first and second down, it comes down to one third down in the fourth quarter where you've got to yeah. get a stop. And that dude has to get home. And Reggie was that guy for us, man. And you knew it was coming. And there were some really good players that he ate up, which is why he's one of the all time greats. Yeah, I, there's uh, basically every like quarter I tweet out the just the Reggie right highlight highlight reel. And it's like a guaranteed at least thousand likes. Like everyone just you cannot not like it anytime it comes across your feed because it's just it's like a, it's just like a masterpiece of him just tossing just enormous human beings like with with ease. It almost looks like we're when he threw Chris Carter like ten yards. <laughs> it's just it's just a hilarious 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 scene to see that. But it seemed like. Not only was he an amazing player off the field, I mean, on the field, but he seemed like he was just as good a guy off the field and seeing some of the specials that have been done on him, he seems like he was a great guy. So it must have been a, an honor to play with someone like that. No doubt, man. Patrick, I'll, I'll tell you this story. This is probably sums up Reggie better than anything. We, we talked about him being a man of faith, God telling him to go to Green Bay to, to make the Super Bowl. Well, in the NFC championship game, he ends up tearing his hamstring and it's torn pretty good. He doesn't finish the game. We win. We know we're going on. And 
come into the locker room, we're all celebrating. And then it all hits us. Oh man, like we lost Reggie. So we all run into the locker room be like, Hey, how's he doing? And it was like, ah, it doesn't look good. And he's like hobbled. Like this is King Kong and Superman that you're watching, you know, kind of be touched with kryptonite and turn into Clark Kent a little bit. And it was like super deflating. So <clears throat> they come in, they test the way they test you for hamstring injuries. They lay you prone face down and they have you bend both your hamstrings and they, they, they try to push and straighten your legs to push your toes down on the table mm-hmm. uh, on the good one to establish your baseline strength. And then they do that with the hurt one to see how much strength loss there is. And that's a pretty good indication of how bad the tear is. <clears throat> well, they did that with Reggie and his strong leg. They couldn't move the off leg, the injured one they did. And it was, there was nothing there. He had zero strength, which isn't a good sign. So Pat McKenzie was the orthopedic surgeon might even still be, he's a huge Notre Dame fan. Um, in a, in a special, special guy for me, for another story for another time. But he says, Reggie, you're done. Like we're, we're going to have to operate on you and, and, and you're going to be done. He said, well, no, 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 let, let's take some films, blah, 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 blah. So he goes in, he takes some MRIs, they scan his hamstrings and sure enough, they put the film up. It's torn off the bone. Mm. And Pat was like, Reg, you're, you're, you're done, man. And Reggie said, no, God, God's going to heal my hamstring. Like, oh, oh, okay. Reggie like, but here's the film, right? So now this is news is spreading like wildfire through the NFL and through green Bay and people are sending in rendered bear fat and like, you know, voodoo dolls and like all this stuff to, <laughs> to ointments yeah, yeah. at lips, all this stuff to help, you know, heal Reggie's hamstring. And he has these prayer vigils and it's round the clock treatment. They're coming to his house while he's in the building. It's like, they're doing everything they can for our franchise player to get him a chance to be able to come back and play. And <clears throat> He comes back in on Tuesday and proudly uh, and and very matter of factly announces to the training staff that God healed his hamstring. And they're like, well, I'm I'm sure it probably feels better. We've been shooting you full of painkillers and anti-inflams and round the clock care. It probably does feel better. So he says, God healed it. Okay, Reg, lay down on the table. We'll, We'll test it. They test his baseline leg, super strong. They go to test his injured leg just as strong they do it again test the injured leg just as strong now they're like wait it should be feeling better but shouldn't be feeling this good let's order another scan he goes and gets a scan and i think it was 48 or 72 hours later they put film next to film torn off the bone completely healed i don't know exactly and pat mckenzie the orthopedic surgeon, if, if you somehow get a chance to talk to him, he said, Aaron, I've never seen anything like it in my life. There's no medical explanation for how he was able to be healed other than God healed his hamstring. So if you ever run into Pat or talk to him, ask that question. It, it was <laughs> one of the many things I think that Reggie did that made him supernatural. That's a, I, that's, there's, I don't even know what to say. That's a, that doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, there's no explanation. There's nothing. There's no medical explanation for that. God healed my hamstring. Oh, I, yeah. I Reg. Yeah. yeah. He, I, was, I, he, was, he was the last one laughing, I guess. Yeah. He, yeah. Was, right. he, was, he was different, man. He was, he was different. Some cats are built different. But the Joe Moore Award, I want to talk about that because the inception of it, like the background, if you could just explain how all of this went down, how, I don't know, are you the founder of it or are you one of some people that founded it? I'm just 
curious about the whole background of the, the award itself and, and what it's all about. Well, Joe Moore was my offensive line coach when I was at Notre Dame and in, in, candidly he was the best offensive line coach to ever coach a position on the collegiate level he sent 52 guys to the nfl in 18 seasons at both pitt and notre dame and there was two yeah. years at temple there but the russ grims the jimbo coverts the bill fralicks uh the mark stepnowski's the jim sweeney's uh, aaron taylor andy heck <laughs> i was gonna say uh, you can say your own name it's okay <laughs> uh tim ruddy like there were some dudes in there multiple college football and nfl hall of famers and what made him great was he he simplified the complex and he was masterful at getting all of his players to be the best versions of themselves. And he didn't give a shit if you had all American potential or were a walk on that didn't even start for your high school team. Like he was going to coach you to get the most out of you, whatever that could be. He he ensured that that was going to be the case and in that process he taught us how to be good people and good men and and I think the thing that I learned the most from him was how to be the best version of myself and that I was capable of accomplishing more than I thought like he eliminated my limiting beliefs in my head about what I thought I was capable of with respect to my potential and endurance and pain tolerance in a lot of a lot of circumstances so ironically it was the Joe Morrow line camp that's held the first weekend in June for the last eight or nine years that you went to, to the very first one. I was invited to that by James, his son, six or seven years in a row, whatever it was. And for some reason or another, I just never could make it. But the reality was, it's not easy to get to Pittsburgh from San Diego. So at the time I was doing a bunch of speaking and I would always tell this one story about Joe and get really emotional. And I'd call bullshit on myself. I'm like, bro, you're, you're using these stories about this man that meant so much to you, but you can't get your fat ass on an airplane and fly to Pittsburgh and have to make a connection. Like whatever. <laughs> so, so I called James, his son on June 7th. That was like two days after the camp. And I said, you book this down. I'm making it out next year, no matter what. He's like, man, great, Aaron, love to have you. All the guys are here, yada, yada, yada. And as we started talking, he reminded me that Kirk Ferentz, I was head coach, that played high school football. Joe Moore was Kirk Ferentz's high school football coach, yes. head coach. And he mentioned that Kirk had tried to, to start a college football award for his mentor many years ago, but it kind of fell flat. And I now know why after picking up where he left off, and he's, he's been a big help um why that is because of the amount of work so as we started talking about do we do an offensive line coach of the year award do we do you know the best o-line player with the remington and lombardi and the outland it was like yeah nothing really resonated but you know better than anybody patrick like as the story started coming out it was always about the room and the guys and and it was again walk-ons or all americans it didn't matter we were just the o-line room and that's kind of when the light bulb went off and I went to ESPN site and I looked up, you know, their award page and there were 26 awards, every single award college football award for the consummate team sport was an individual award. Mm -hmm. And that's when the light bulb went off. We're, this isn't an individual award. Joe wasn't an individual guy. He was about the room and the unit. We need to do an offensive line unit award, tackle to tackle all five functioning as one and boom. And that was June 7th. Well, fast forward to December 20th of that same year, 
And the trophy that I just presented to, to Alabama, that LSU mm-hmm. won before that, that Oklahoma won before that, that Notre Dame won before that, that Iowa won before that, that Alabama won in its inaugural year, that same trophy was designed, the artwork was shot, the armature and the clay models and the trophy molds were all made, the wooden base, all that was put together in Pittsburgh by the Vanderlyn Company, they do great stuff. From June 7th to December 20th, it was the fastest that the foundry, that the award-winning artist, Jerry McKenna, that's a Notre Dame grad, and uh, the Four Horsemen and Lou Holtz's statue and the Virgin Mary at Notre Dame, like he's Mm. one of the world's best sculptures. He was the guy that we commissioned to do it. All that got done in six months. And it got done by a team that never once met virtually. We were all high school or all collegiate athletes but we did it all virtually and we embodied the very things that we were striving to preserve. And that was working our ass off for the greater good and doing it together as a team. And it's become one of the fastest growing, most respected college football awards. Nick Saban, it's his favorite award because it celebrates the team. It's the only trophy, as you mentioned, that honors a group or a unit. And we're really proud of that. Yeah, that's just, it's an incredible award in my opinion. And then the sheer size too is awesome because, you know, as lime and big guys, the bigger, the better. So I, I love the size of it as well, but the, the sculpture, I guess, is what it'd be called. I think it's such a cool looking trophy. Like, I think it's amazing. Like even those little ones that you give out to the guys individually, if I was an, if I was a offensive lineman or even just a group, like I would strive to try to get one of those trophies in my life because like, that's how badass they are. In my opinion, I, I just love the award so much. And, and I have, I have some really, really famous people that follow me, really cool people in different fields follow me. But when the Joe Moore award account followed me, I was like, so fired up. I was like, I was like, that's, this is awesome. You know, it's just like, you're saying there's all individual awards and it just doesn't feel right that like individual lineman gets in, you know, you know, one war. Cause it's, it's never about one guy. It's, and that's why my account, I ha- it was just the big guy. And that's my name, the big guy, but I changed my username. So we are big guys. And mm. I think a lot of people think it means we are big guys, like the people running the account, but I changed it to meaning like, this is all of us. Like, this is all our, yeah. this is, this is our account. This is my account. This is our community. So I think that's why the award just for so many different reasons resonates, resonates with me so much. Well, you, you, that's a testament to who you are because you're on brand with what we represent, right? And that's what's unique about our position. Like, I never met you. I never played with you. You reached out and wanted to do something and knowing what you've done and who you are, like there's a camaraderie and a brotherhood just from the fact that we played the same position, whether it's mm-hmm. in Williams or Notre Dame, it doesn't matter. Like we're, we're, we're all in this deal together. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of, I think, with the award is our tagline. I am because of us like that mm-hmm. defines what our award and our positions about and really on a much deeper level in another time, another story for another time, like what our country used to be, or at least was aspirationally wanting to be like this notion <clears throat> of the, the greatness that we're a part of, like I'm defined by the circles that I sit in the rooms of, of which you know, I participate in, in my friends and all those sort of things. So this notion of we are big guys or I am because of us is at the heart of, of what the O-line position is about. And it's an honor to come on on your show and, and to talk some shop. And I look forward. I got a ton of Joe Moore's like there's so much crazy, coincidental, like 
God, football God or actual God things that took place to allow this to happen, it would mm-hmm. blow your mind. And I really look forward to sharing that with you at some point. Yeah. Like, like we said, already doing this, we, there's gotta be a part two at, at some <laughs> point and we can, we can get in depth of more of these things. Um, but I don't want to take all your time. So I'm going to transition to the last question. I always ask guys your favorite food. And recently I've been asking guys like Cole, I asked him, if you're in Auburn, what's the best food you, you, you got to get if you're there or Birmingham. So for you, what's your favorite food? It could be what you get out. It could be a homemade meal. And if you're in at Notre Dame visiting, like what's the place you got to go to eat, man, I, what's my favorite food. Like if I'm on a desert Island and I right. only have to eat one thing, God dang, that's so hard. <laughs> good, good barbecue is hard to beat. Okay. It's hard to beat. Um, and I love to barbecue, but I also love to fish. So I do a lot of sushi and fusion and, okay. and that sort of stuff. I love curries and earthy Thai or Indian. Um, I'll, I'll eat the corn out of cat turds, man. Like I, I'm not real discriminatory <laughs> when, it, when it comes to eating, but I think well done barbecue is, is probably okay. at the top of the heat. Uh, in South Bend, a CJ's pub burger, the best still to this day, the best hamburger I've ever had in my life. And maybe that's because I was full of Long Island iced teas or, or $3 <laughs> pitchers. But uh, if you get to Notre Dame, get to CJ's pub. It's an iconic staple and in, in probably the place that um, we had the most fun after games when I was in college. Okay, that's awesome. I, you're not the first to say barbecue, so I respect that answer. And I'm definitely going to begin to Notre Dame hopefully sooner than later. And when I go, I'm definitely going to have to hit that place off, especially if there's what, like $3 pitchers or something you said. <laughs> that was back then. Inflation's gone up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You never know, but Aaron, so, that's all I have for you. So I'm going to sign off here and thank you so much for joining on. I wish you a lot of luck in all your, all your ventures. Well, I appreciate it, Patrick. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed the big guy, your Twitter account. And uh, it's really nice to get a chance to know you and, and, get to know the person behind that it, it hasn't surprised me at all that you are who you are because somehow some way in the clips that you put out that comes across and love to have you be a part of the joe moore award in some capacity because you'd fit right in well thank you very much i just wanted to pop in and quickly say when i was doing this interview with aaron we actually talked 10 to 15 minutes before i actually started recording and i wasn't sure where to put this segment into the interview because I, didn't, I couldn't really find a good place where this managed to fit. So what I'm going to do this last five to 10 minutes or so of discussion between Aaron and I, I'm going to throw that in now. So while the actual quote unquote interview ended, this is us talking before the actual interview technically began. And he knew, he knew I was recording. So there was a lot that I ended up taking out that didn't want to get this going too crazy long, but I thought this was a good portion that should be included so if you've made it this far and you're still listening and enjoying the interview thank you so much for making this far and here is the last little segment of Aaron and I talking before any of the interview actually started well I, I I would challenge that a little bit bro because like we all are ex-athletes a hell of a lot longer than we're ever going to play but very few of us get to leave on our own terms so even if it's you know leave an injury your junior year at Williams College or me getting hurt on day four in our underwear in Green Bay and blowing out my right patella tendon like the feelings are identical my Mm -hmm. wife played pro beach volleyball and was in two Olympics and she struggled with her transition and and at the heart of that's the identity right like we've always been what we've always done and that 
goes away, you were forced to answer the question, like, who am I now that I'm no longer playing ball? And holy shit, was that hard to kind of sift through. It took me almost 10 years to kind of figure that out. So mm -hmm. I've seen it across all levels, all sports, that when we hang them up, and, and especially when it's hung up on us, man, it's difficult. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I've, I've talked to people about that. And that's why one thing I'm very passionate about is just mental health awareness in general, because I've, I've had friends who, you know, went the D1 route, didn't make the league. And then like, they just get, they're just lost in the world because like you're saying your whole entire life, you're always the athlete and you're always one of the you know better athletes. If you made it to the level that you guys have played at. So you're kind of like the big man on campus your whole life. And then all of a sudden, what do you do now? You know, you're just like an unemployed guy trying to figure out what the hell you want to do in life. But one of the biggest things that helped me was my big guy account. Once I stopped playing, I was able to like really take it seriously. And it was something I was passionate about. And uh, I've worked at some small little podcasts on campus in college to get used to trying to talk in a mic. And it's something I've always been interested in doing. So that's where the whole background of all this comes from is, you know, it was a really hard time when it happened, but I'm thankful for when it did happen because it also helped me kind of transition to this and helped me figure out before college ended, like this is something I'm really passionate about and want to do. No question, man. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and when I retired, like kind of when I went and kind of reverse engineered what I had, what was missing and what I was trying to replace, like I didn't know what that was. What I've come to understand is that there's basically five things, kind of the five pillars of fulfillment, if you will. And the first was income. That's obviously, you know, how I receive value for value I bring. Then there's the identity piece, which was how I'm known to the world. But there was also underneath that how I'm known to myself. In addition to that, it's significance, how I know I make a difference, right? 80 times mm. a practice or a game, you know, you know, you're making your job. Good block, good read, good adjustment, good, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> The purpose piece was the big one for me, like why I felt like I was put on the earth, like all of that evaporated in, a, in an instant. And then the final fifth one is community, right? Knowing that I'm a small part of something greater than myself. When you blew out your arm and your wrist and had the pins put in and all that, like in an instant, poof, all that disappeared. So what I found, and, and this is true for a lot of guys, whether they played in the NFL or, you know, a D3 college that we spend so like people don't, I don't think people understand what it takes to perform at the level of mm. even being an athlete period in college, in the NFL, like it's, it, it's all consuming. And that's how we're able to continue to elevate when the dudes we played with in high school didn't. Mm -hmm. And when that's gone, like, is, I remember like after the season would end and we wake up and there was no class, there was no workouts. And we're like, what the hell do we do with our day? And there's like <laughs> three or four days at Notre Dame right. where it's like, holy shit. Like, is this what students do? They like wake up and they go to class, they eat and they go <laughs> home. And then boom, winter conditioning would start, yeah. and, you know, short lived, <clears throat> but like a prolonged period of that was really challenging for a lot of us and, and myself included. But I think what you said, was the key factor and that's that you you were engaged in what you were doing you took classes to learn how to talk into a microphone and and were proactive about what it is you want and i find when people do that when they're engaged in their lives they may not end up where they started out and aimed but they always end up mm -hmm. in a much better place and where they were supposed to be and it usually takes a circuitous route so i know the courage it's taken for you to do that and just the hustle, man, the same stuff that allows you to be successful in athletes, probably going to allow you to be successful in this business mm -hmm. or whatever you end up doing. 
I just want to give a huge shout out to Aaron Taylor again for coming on the show. Like I've said in the tweets, like I've said in, in the intro, by far the best and coolest and funnest podcast I've done to date, just between the chemistry we had and the stories he gave. Already looking forward to hopefully getting him back on to even talk further and get some more stories out of his playing career. But of course, when I have a really long interview, stuff in the NFL world actually decides to happen. But when I don't have an interview or it's a really short interview, nothing happens. <laughs> so I don't want to really go too into much detail about all this different stuff because I just don't have time. I don't want to have a two hour long podcast, but just some of the highlights. Jadavion Clowney going to the Browns as a Steelers fan. I don't know how I feel about that. It's like on the level of just the name, it's frightening. But then when you realize he's only had like three sacks and 11 pressures the last two years, I'm like, okay, maybe it's just a little overpay on the Browns part. And he's going to be just, you know, an average linebacker, outside linebacker, DN guy. But when you pair him up with that D-line and defense in general, it could be really dangerous. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I appreciate the Browns, though. The Browns are going all in. If you're a Browns fan right now, you should be loving every minute of this. Between that duo, then you have the duo of OBJ and Landry, and then you have the running back duo. I mean, you have a really, really just really cool, fun team in Cleveland for sure right now. The other news, Aaron Donald in my city, Pittsburgh, the south side. Got a little tussle at 3 a.m. with the guy. First and foremost, who in their right mind would be fighting Aaron Donald? That's besides me. That dude had to have been like double double digits drinks deep to even think about attempting to get in a scuffle with AD. Now, I don't know what's going to be the repercussions of this in terms of, like all jokes aside, because Twitter was pretty hilarious yesterday. Like it's still a pretty serious incident if, if anything comes up or like the security footage of this or whatever. So AD might actually be in some serious trouble. So we'll see what happens on that front. But still, it's somewhat exciting in a weird way. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't mean that negatively. I'm not trying to hate on AD. He's, my, he's like my idol. He's from, I'm from Pittsburgh. He's from Pittsburgh. He went to Pitt. Not, no AD hate, but it's still exciting news in the NFL world at this time because we're all just waiting for the NFL draft. Last but not least, Julian Edelman retiring. It's hard to imagine the New England Patriots without Brady, Edelman, and Gronk. It's just it's it's the end of an era. And honestly, I hated all those guys when we played them. But there's also a level of respect for all of them as players because if you're a football player, you understand how good they are and talented. And this reminded me of when all the Ravens, like the Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Terrell Suggs, when they all left that defense. It's just a weird feeling and kind of sad and humbling almost seeing all those guys gone because it's a stark realization of like, wow, I'm getting old. Like these guys who we grew up watching are all gone now. And it's just, it's while I'm happy as a fan, there's definitely some sadness about it, but it's also kind of cool that we, you know, we got to witness that era of the new England Patriots, even though how bad it was, even though how awful it was in the midst of it, it's like a once in a lifetime dynasty and and team in in general. And, And Edelman was a big part of that more so on the back end versus the beginning, but still just a special guy. You got to give him credit for, you know, where he came from, for being a quarterback at Kent State to get all the way to what he's become now. And maybe one of the, the best catches in Super Bowl history against the Falcons, for sure. So hats off to his amazing career. On that on that note, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. I think anyone saying that is out of their freaking minds. And I don't even – not even going to – if it happens, I'm going to be sick. But I hope it doesn't. I hope the, the voters are in the right sense because just statistically there's like – Tory Holt, Reggie Wayne, Heinz Ward, there's so many guys so much better than he was statistically in the NFL, so I don't think he's deserving to get in. But I'm sure he has his defenders out there, so we'll see what happens on that end. But that's all I have for this episode. Like I said, I'm not going to get into detail in any of those because I don't want this going too long. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Aaron Taylor, and I hope to keep bringing other cool interviews like that to the show. And as always, thanks for tuning in. If you haven't yet, follow me on all my social medias, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at We Are Big Guys. And the podcast Twitter at the Big Uglies Pod. 
please subscribe, download, write a review, give me a rating, five stars preferably, no big deal. And last but not least, again, check out the We Are Big Guy store if you haven't yet to find all your big guy apparel needs. And if you want to give Liquid IV a shot, use the promo code WeAreBigGuys at the checkout. Get 25% off and free shipping on your order. Or just check out my Instagram. There'll be a link there. You can swipe up and check out their products there. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for everything you guys do. I will see you guys next week. 